Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the powerful Black women that have inspired the gender equity movement and that have inspired me. From Sojourner Truth to Alice Walker to Angela Davis, and of course, the late and brilliant Bell Hooks. I also talked a lot about intersectionality of bias and the work of Kimberly Crenshaw. Intersectionality is a framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. The term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, and she has described it as, quote, a lens through which you can see where power comes and collides, where it interlocks and intersects. It's not simply that there's a race problem here, a gender problem here, and a class or LGBTQ problem there. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subject to all of those things, end quote. The Advancing Women podcast is grounded in understanding and interrupting the inequitable biases and barriers that keep talented women from advancing and the intersectionality of bias. And a thread that is woven through this podcast is the importance of advancing all women. It is important for us all to step up and be a part of the solution. And to that end, I am so excited to talk today to diversity, equity, and inclusion expert Latoya Pierce about DEI and leading with a diversity lens. Dr. Pierce currently serves as the Chief Diversity Officer and Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Centenary College of Louisiana. Dr. Pierce has 16 years of experience in higher education, both as a faculty member and administrator. Her social justice work has included serving as a member of the University President's Commission on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, as well as a member of the A-10 Athletic Conference Commission on Racial Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Additionally, Dr. Pierce has served as a subject matter expert in diversity for the university system in the state of Louisiana. Dr. Pierce has chaired and served on multiple dissertations, many of which explored underserved and underrepresented populations. She actively serves on five local boards and in the community focused on advocacy, the arts and community engagement, and continues to see clients as a licensed mental health therapist. Dr. Pierce, I don't know how you are even finding the time to meet with me with all of those things you are doing, <laughs> but I am so, so very excited to have you here with me today. I really appreciate it and look forward to this conversation. Thank you. I do as well, Dr. B. Simone. I was excited uh, to get the invitation to have this, this time and share this space with you as well. You know, I read a recent S&P Global analysis that showed that disparities and opportunities, especially for Hispanic and Black women in America, carries a significant cost, not just from a social aspect for the women themselves, but also for the economy overall. And the inequalities women face have been a drag, not just on their bank accounts, but also on the long-term economic growth for everyone. And so I really want to talk a little bit about seeing diversity, equity, and inclusion from this lens of how it helps everyone. Absolutely. I love that what you just said, there's a very holistic piece to that. Because one of the things I always talk about is shifting gears from individuals thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural diversity, all those different terms, kind of buzzwords that we use, thinking of it as an otherness and thinking of it as, well, that's 
something for you to work on or that's something for you to contend with. That there is this uh, assignment to just a certain group, just a certain population, and that is that person's issues or that population's issues. When in fact, we have to think about diversity, equity, inclusion collectively um, if we are to move the needle forward. We have to think of it as how do we collectively think in terms of how impactful this group of women, Black women, Hispanic women, uh, women of color, how much more impactful that population could be, one, if we had mentorship, two, if we had support uh, in terms of moving into leadership positions, if we had all these other things that, that structurally would allow us to, to basically set us up for success. Again, I am uh, truly just excited to have the conversation because the more um, dialogues, the more discussions, the more discourse we have around this particular topic, that's also how we move the needle forward. Education is an important tool and education is a piece uh, of that collective voice in moving into allyship and moving into a collective parameter around diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm really glad you brought up the specific things we need to be looking to. And you mentioned mentorship and so forth. And it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I saw this lean in study of the state of black women in corporate America. And it found that women of color and black women in particular tend to receive less support and encouragement from their managers. Mm-hmm. Their managers are less likely to advocate for them. And they are far less likely to have informal interactions with senior leaders, which create those opportunities for them to be put in that position of top of mind when you're thinking about who you want to advocate for. Yes. And I think that example in particular feeds into the imposter syndrome. It feeds into, do I belong in this space? Even when that trajectory starts to really kind of take off, right? And you're advancing into these leadership positions. You start to question, is there anyone in senior management who looks like me? Right. Representation, right? Representation matters. matters. It matters. And we always talk about this. So is there someone in senior management that looks like me? Um, How have I been groomed into advancing into these leadership positions as a woman of color, as a Black woman? Because we understand and we know there are other things that you have to contend with. There are ways that as women, we learn to navigate those very uh, political spaces, both in the corporate world, higher education, whatever the setting may be. But navigating that as well as a woman of color, as a Black woman, what is the example that has been set? Then there's also, I don't, I don't think I can cuss on your, your podcast. And I can, won't, but I'm going to cuss, <laughs> but I'm not. But I, I was thinking, I was like, how do I say this uh, professionally? But I'm thinking about, on top of imposter syndrome, there's also the, um, I can't F this up because I'm the first one, right? Yes, yes. Prove it again. Held to that highest standard, right? That's right. So that's playing in, into this whole um, ad, uh, women of color advancing in their careers, in their trajectory, whatever shape, form that may be. Um, but there's all these other things that are going on that are kind of the background outside of simply learning how to do this job, how to do it well, uh, navigating the space with the people who don't look like me and navigating the politics uh, of this space. 
all these other internal things that are happening. Yeah, and they're exhausting, right? Things that and are exhausting and take energy away from being as productive and being as good as you can be. And when you said what you just said, I thought a lot about a quote from Claire Booth Luce. She said, quote, because I am a woman, I must make unusual efforts to succeed. If I fail, no one will say she doesn't have what it takes. They will say women don't have what it takes. And absolutely. And as you said, this is especially true for women of color who are likely to be the first. In that same lean in study I talked about, it was found that the only experience, quote unquote, only is Mm -hmm. far too common for black women. Mm -hmm. 54% of black women say they're often onlys in that they are the only Black person or one of the only Black people in the room at work experiencing a particular set of difficulties. They're very aware of the fact that they are seen as representative. They're more likely than other groups to feel as though their individual successes and failures will reflect on people like them. And so again, there's research to support this is true for women overall. And then there's additional research. This is that intersectionality that layers upon layers to say, not only are all of your mistakes or very few errors that maybe you make representative of your own mistakes, but they are also indicative of women. And then they are also indicative of the entire Black community. And that is a hefty weight. It's an amplification, right? It is an amplification of you have to be perfect. You have to get this right. And any mistakes that you make will be generalized to your entire community. And so you don't have the privilege of having kind of this individual weight, but you also have the community weight that's being put upon you because you are one, you are one of few, are you the only one? Um, Well, and oftentimes it's the only representation a person has ever encountered in that leadership role. And so there's this idea that, oh, well, this is what I know about this group of people. I'm like, this is what you know about one person. Yes, yes, yes. And there's not space for... Uh, diversity within diversity. There, there is simply, okay, this person is a representative. And so thus, every person in that group is just like her. Yeah. I talked about that in one episode I did on the queen bee syndrome. And I always think it's so interesting when a person has a bad woman boss and they're like, oh, women aren't good bosses. I'm like, is this queen bee syndrome or is this just a person who wasn't a great boss because you've only had one woman boss and you've had 10 male bosses. Are you telling me they were all awesome? Probably some of the male bosses were good. Some were bad, but you're very unreliable sample size of one or two. It also doesn't take into account that this is a different kind of leadership that you may benefit from as opposed to seeing it as not the norm or not what you're accustomed to, to say, well, and how is that a positive thing? Absolutely. It is about the lens and it's about how we frame that. So perception is reality. And so, you know, the way that we go into that situation, how it matches up with our sense of what is to be true and real for us is really going to inform. We reflect upon that experience going forward. Yeah. I talked about too that excellent article that was written for Harvard Business Review, but it was the kind of don't bring your authentic self to work. Like don't believe (laughs) them when they tell you to bring that because they don't really mean it. Because of course, bringing your authentic self might make people uncomfortable. And whenever we put the power Mm -hmm. structure in a position to be uncomfortable, there's going to be backlash. And so that's a consequence that I think a lot of women and persons of color are aware of that other people are like, what do you mean? We we told you, it's fine. Bring your, yes, yay you, bring your authentic self. And it's like, (laughs) Yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not buying that, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I often say it's not your fault, but it is your problem, right? Mm -hmm. So there's inequities and biases and there's intersectionality of biases for women and persons of color that are totally unfair that you shouldn't have to deal with that are actually bullshit. I'm going to go ahead and curse on my own podcast. (laughs) Now I don't feel bad. Thank you. (laughs) That's right. So that said, we want to transcend and thrive. So we have to have these pragmatic approaches Mm -hmm. as well. So I want to ask, how then can women navigate office politics in work environments where they are one of a few people for an underrepresented group or, you know, they're part of the onlys? What are your recommendations in terms of navigating that? So the first thing is find your allies. Um, It is really important for you to do this. You know, this should be the next Apple app <laughs> on my iPhone, the Find Your Allies app. But it's really, really- I important. love it. I, I, I love it too. I, but, and I don't want to make light of it, but it's really important. And when I think about Find Your Allies, I think about a couple of things. One, observe and pay attention. You can learn a lot uh, by simply observing, paying attention, um, thinking about how this person interacts, not only with you, but with other people as well. Well, uh, possibly having an opportunity to observe how they interact with people who also look like you. So observe and pay attention, listen carefully, test the water sometimes is an appropriate move. And what I mean by that is I might give like a small dose of information, something about me that you can probably find on social media, but something benign just to see maybe does this stay confidential? Um, Does it get back to me in some way, shape, or form from that person's circle? But I'm looking for who is this person who is going to ally with me? Who is this person who's going to speak up whether I'm in the room or I'm not in the room? And for me, that's the barometer. When I'm not in that room, is that person going to behave the same way uh, and speak up for those those marginalized groups, speak up for Black women, speak up for uh, all women and all, all oppressed groups? How do they behave when I'm not in the room? And then you have to think about that difference between um, performative allyship and real allyship. You know, the, the iceberg metaphor of the performative allyship where people go out and do something, they post it on Facebook, they post it on social media. So, and I'm not saying, you know, there's anything inherently wrong with that, but there is something inherently wrong with that if that's all you do. Yeah. We're looking for the allies who are underneath the surface, they get in the roots, they get in the depths, they get into the breadth of DEI work and allyship. And that's the importance of finding your allies. So when you are trying to navigate those politics in your work environment, first thing I always say is find your ally. Second thing I say is to have other supports outside of work. You need to find your group, a group of people that feed your soul and nurture your spirit outside of work because you have to have something that puts back into you. When you're experiencing these layers of Mm -hmm. bias and the exhaustion of it all and the constant prove it again and your competency being questioned and all those things, no matter how powerful and badass and warrior you are, you Mm -hmm. can still fall into this, well, maybe I'm not is good or maybe they're right. Mm -hmm. And I think you're exactly right. Having that tribe of people that you trust that can come to you and say, yeah, that's not true. Nope. We're not having that conversation because, and this proof and this evidence and this truth that helped to bring you back and get your head right. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. Absolutely. Absolutely necessary. 
And so you talked about um, allyship, but also you mentioned amplification. And it's funny, I talk about the three A's a lot, right? Acknowledge, amplify, and allyship. And I think acknowledgement is so important. Yes. You have to be willing to accept that it is not a level playing field and that there are indeed barriers. And I think we have to say to ourselves, all people, good people, everyone have biases as part of the lived experience of being a human being. Yeah. So you have to be willing to say how I feel about this is not necessarily the reality, right? I have to look to other indicators. Absolutely. When I, when I talk with my um, clients as a therapist, it's a difference between being able to separate the person from the behavior. That is a hard thing. Sometimes we get into these DEI spaces, they will get into this front of, you know, they're in this, this person, this type of work, whatever the case may be, this is encroaching upon who I am as a person and interpreting it as they think I'm a bad person. Right. Or a criticism of their character as opposed yes. to an actual outcome of living in a world where we all have different experiences. Yes, absolutely. The acknowledgement piece, uh, listen, believe, and validate, I, I think oh. is a huge part of it. Listen, believe, and validate. I think that's probably the most important thing working in that allyship space. That's a gift that you can give to that person because that's not that. something they get all the time. It's simple and it is a practice. Get yes. into the practice of hearing and then the, the voices are going to come, right? They're going to come mm-hmm. in and say, no, I'm an ally and all of the things that you're doing and it becomes about you. And yes. then it's almost interrupting that and reframing it and saying, let me take myself <laughs> out of this for a second and actually hear what you're feeling. And you said earlier, perception is reality. So let that be a better barometer. And I'm always astounded with how people will say that they feel a process is fair. And yet the results of the process show inequity. And they want to look at the process and say, well, the process seemed fair. But if the outcomes are that women and persons of color aren't advancing, then you're either saying this group doesn't deserve to advance, Mm -hmm. they're not as good, or you admit that there's some kind of systemic or organizational or process or policy related impact. And admitting that the process is, is unfair, it's biased, it's flawed, whatever we want to call it, requires them change. Yeah, and that's which scary. is hard. Yeah, and that's scary hard. and hard. Yes. And I have a favorite saying, you can't clean your house if you don't see the dirt. Yes. And you're right. It takes work to clean the house. You know, when you start to acknowledge, you then have a to-do list. And so you have to be ready to your point, which also speaks to allyship because I will challenge people often. They'll say, well, I'm an ally. And I'll say, tell me three things you specifically did. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, 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 because they philosophically feel like an ally and they see allyship as a noun, like it's yes. in and of itself, yes. as opposed to a verb. It's a verb. It's, it's a verb. So what have you done and how do you it's see it that verb. way? And there is this conceptual allyship, meaning, well, I don't stand in the way of these things. However, I'm not really active in doing exactly what you said, Dr. Simone. It makes a real difference in thinking about allyship, how we conceptualize it, but also what are the active things that we're doing? And it is indeed a verb. And I love what you said about when you're not there. Yes. Because that's actually sponsorship beyond mentorship. That's investing your professional capital Mm -hmm. in changing the status quo for deserving, qualified, talented women of color because you've acknowledged that they don't have that leg up. That's so important to say, 
What am I doing specifically? How is Latoya Pierce's name in my mouth when I'm asked to talk about talented people? And I think it's, you know, a practice. And I also think allyship and amplification is about being in the room and protecting to some degree. And I hate to use that word because I don't want to have this kind of, you know, privilege cape floating in the wind behind me, but protecting women or persons of color, when you see them not getting the acknowledgement, when you see them making a point that then gets kind of overlooked and glossed over, and then Mm -hmm. somebody else brings up the point and everybody glams onto it. And you kind of interrupt and say, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I might be misunderstanding. How is that different than what Dr. Pierce just said? Are you agreeing with her or not? Because I feel like that's what she just said. This kind of invisibility that can happen when you are Mm. an only When you are the only one. And again, I encourage people, go into a room and be the only. Mm -hmm. Try to put yourself in rooms where you are the only and see how you feel and get in touch with that feeling. It is a worthwhile exercise. I've had so many people say, um, I've traveled abroad and I've been in a space where I was the only And I never had a very real experience of what that looked like and what that felt like. And it was uncomfortable and it was surreal. And just all these different, you know, adjectives to try to to explain and describe what that feeling is like. And then think about, here's the amplification, living in that space constantly, every day, navigating that space where you are the only yeah, not um, just for the week or the one meeting or right? one time, but as a regular <laughs> all condition. The time. All, all the, the time. Place. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience in my career in corporate America where I did a trip to Hong Kong and I had this business dinner and I was acutely aware that I was sitting at a table with 10 Asian men. Mm-hmm. And myself, you know, this 20 something Hispanic woman, and they were great and it was fine, but I couldn't help but notice this feeling of, wow, I don't know that I've ever been in an environment where I was the only, the degree to which a lot of people are all the time, and how yes. emotionally draining and the emotional labor of navigating those waters can be. You said something about invisibility. And that struck me. The invisibility piece, I think, is important because even when Black women are present, even when we're one of few, I think because the norm, the way systems work, the way systems are structured, the way uh, we have not been able to fully dismantle institutional and systemic racism, There's an invisibility factor where even if you're present in the room, even if you are engaged in the conversation and the discourse, there is still the component of being physically present, but conceptually invisible. I totally agree. It's so important. And I think that this statement needs to be said. A Mm -hmm. face in the room is not a voice in the room. Yes. Being in the room and even being able to give your input is not the same as a real seat at the table where what you say and your input are received and seen Mm -hmm. as valuable, acted upon. That's so important because it's really at the heart of tokenism and this idea that we don't just (laughs) need to put people there. We need to actually then listen and I would argue reap the benefits of having the person in the room. I would agree. 
there's all this research, especially in business literature, that talks about how much more impactful your organization is by having diverse voices. Not check the box and just say, we have this person here at the organization, but this person has a voice. This person has input. This person has influence. And I think that's the driving factor. This person has influence on the decisions that we make and how much more impactful and how much more that organization tends to thrive when that approach and that process is fully functioning. But there's got to be buy-in and there's got to be a belief in that process. I totally agree. I know that a lot of people say DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I love IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and action. It has to manifest in a way that is meaningful and beneficial. And what's important and part of what you talked about that I want to also talk about a little bit more is Williamson Dempsey's work on Prove It Again Mm -hmm. is a barrier that shows that women often need to prove it again. And women of color especially say, I've got to prove it again and again again. and again. (laughs) And so the research shows that women often feel their successes are discounted and their mistakes are noticed and more Mm -hmm. highly criticized and remembered longer. But the research also shows that this is magnified for women of color and especially Black women. When Black women succeed, people often attribute their accomplishments to factors outside of her control. Things like affirmative action and the problems with tokenism and this idea that you're always fighting this deep-seated idea that perhaps you don't belong there and you've only gotten there because of. And so that is amplified when then the person isn't listened to and doesn't have influence. It really reinforces this very subconscious bias that you don't belong there. Yeah. And we talk about just how you end it, Dr. P. Simone, belonging as kind of the magic bullet that drives um, idea, DEI, this type of work. Um, but it's the belongingness factor and feeling as if I belong here. But belongingness is what erodes imposter syndrome. Um, and that is one of the, the things that helps to mitigate imposter syndrome is that feeling of belongingness. I'm where I'm supposed to be. There are people that support me. There are people that are going to advocate with me. There are allies here. Also, this is an organization that truly believes in the empowerment of women of color and not only how it benefits them personally, but also how it benefits all of us, how we are better because of these voices that are now at the table. I think that's really important. And I just want to bring up one point too. We talk a lot about equity, but also I want to talk a little bit about equality and fixing mm-hmm. the problem of the pay gap for mm-hmm. women of color. According to U.S. Census, on average, Black women are paid 63% of what non-Hispanic white men were paid. Mm-hmm. And that means, if you think about it, it takes the typical Black woman 19 months to be paid what the average white man takes home in 12 months. And similarly for Hispanics. And so I think this idea of equity at the top, we have to have women and persons of color in those spaces. We have to pay them. 
we've got to get that piece fixed. We've got to get those numbers where they need to be as well, because the economic consequences for the long term, especially when you consider the additional challenges to be paid less and to have so many more biases, barriers, challenges. And also you have Black women, Hispanic women, persons of color on all of these committees because we want to have their voice, but you can't just use people. You have to pay people. I know you're in the academic environment, and I'm sure you can talk about that a little bit about the committee work and all of the extras that are often asked. I don't think people realize that. They think they're doing you a favor by inviting you, and it is important to have that diverse voice, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the pay and the extra work of Mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion that so often disproportionately falls on women and persons of color. Yes. So I'm going to start with what someone said, um, and it, it stuck with me because I think it resonates exactly with the pay gap, um, the additional roles and additional work uh, that a woman of color who's in a leadership role especially has to undertake. Um, because again, just as you said, Dr. Simone, it is important to be included. It's important to be invited and serve on these committees because there is that diverse voice on that committee but it is in addition to all these other things that this person is being asked to do. And so one of the things that stuck with me was um, your priorities are in your budget. And it means that whatever your budget, whatever you have allotted for the upcoming financial year, those shine through in your budget. Often what happens, and this segues right into why sometimes DEI efforts fall short or they fail at many organizations, institutions, whatever the entity may be. One, it is a budgetary issue in that there's not supports that are built into the budget for this person coming into some sort of DEI position. There's also face validity as well. And I I use that term because sometimes there are very good intentions. Senior management will say, we need a DEI person, we need uh, a diversity advocate, whatever we want to call it. We need this. And it is a good idea. And and it's a good look for the company, for the organization, but really are not adept in the depth and breadth of DEI work. So part of this is training. Part of this is not only do I want this to happen, not only do I think it's important, but in order for me to fully be engaged in this, I probably need to get training as well. Visually, I think of a car kind of hanging off of a cliff, right? And what we do often is we wait until the car is already kind of hanging off the cliff and then say, okay, now it's time for us to do something. Now it's time for us to create a position or or really become engaged in this process. Part of it's fear. It's fear of pushback from others who may uh, oppose or really don't understand DEI work. But some of it is also an opposite. Some of it is fear of how successful this might actually become. Because with that, we go back to change. Change is difficult and change is scary. So sometimes it is the polarity of this might actually take off. This might actually grow. This might actually evolve. This might actually become a part of normal operations. And then what? I'm not sure if I'm comfortable being in that space. But again, going back to the budget and making sure the budget supports this particular type of work, making sure there are supports that are built in, but an acknowledgement for how this particular type of work is not siloed. 
I think that's one of the real shortfalls of a lot of businesses and institutions. People go into it thinking, okay, I'm behind this initiative. I support this. But there is this paradigm of it's going to be siloed and this person is going to only work in this parameter. When in fact, we understand DEI work is hopefully like tentacles that spread out across the entity, across that institution, across that agency, because DEI work is supposed to touch all parts of that organization um, to be influential and to be impactful. And so some of it is just not fully understanding um, the power of DEI work and how successful uh, it could be. So many things you just said that I want to talk about. There are two key things that I want to punctuate that you said. The first is this idea of infusing diversity, equity, inclusion throughout the entire organization, that it isn't one person's problem because this is where you run into problems. You hire Dr. LaToya Pierce to serve as your chief diversity officer. And all of the sudden, that allows people to say, oh, great, that's taken care of now. It comes off of my plate, as opposed to what it really means, which is here's a resource to help us infuse diversity, equity, inclusion, and gain the benefits of it in all kinds of places to help us understand and learn how to create a more level playing field, a more fair, equitable, and belonging environment. If you see the hiring of a chief diversity officer as not an investment, but rather your chance to step back and say, oh, great, I've got a lot on my plate anyway, then you've missed it completely. And so we have to be really careful of that. And I think that is one of my biggest concerns when I talk about DEI. Yes, invest in it, but that does not exonerate culpability or responsibility. (laughs) It's all of our responsibility. So yes, 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 Dr. Pierce, I thank you for making that point. But the (laughs) most important point by far is People, and this is a basic tenet of human behavior. Mm-hmm. Reward the behavior you want to see. Yes. It is important when it is rewarded. And you can say what you're saying, but when you don't celebrate, acknowledge, and reward diversity, equity, inclusion work, you send a very clear message that shouts over your public relations messaging that this isn't actually a high priority. That really speaks to the heart of if you want to fix the problem. There's a lot of ways you've outlined here, but nothing is more meaningful than your point that you must reward the behavior you want to see, and you have to tie key performance indicators to those diversity initiatives. Yes. Organizations struggle with how do we then move from... Uh, we've, we've got this person here, or maybe we even have a DEI strategic plan. Maybe we have these key things in place, but then how do we move and how do we implement? That goes back to a couple of things that we talked about before, where you're making it a priority. Everyone is, is participating in some sort of DEI training. Um, you're hiring experts or consultants. If you don't have a CDO or a diversity advocate or whatever you want to call it, you're building your strategic plan and crafting that plan that has short-term goals, long-term goals. But it is about accountability. And I think that has to be the term that is utilized often. Circle back to there's got to be a level of accountability. A lot of times we put together a very good plan and we put together a lot of theory and conceptual pieces and frameworks and position statements that 
from an external viewpoint look very, very good. That's PR. That's not showing evidence that it's working. That's right. But internally, what's going on behind the veil? That is accountability. How are we going to assess it? Um, who's responsible for this particular action item? How do we have a report card year one, year two, year three, year four? Those are the accountability pieces that we need. And that's the action plan that we need. Everything else, the PR stuff, like you talked about, Dr. Simone, that's for the outside world to see. What we have to get to in our work and how we get to the heart of DEI is how are we doing the internal stuff? If someone were to come in and do an assessment internally of our organization, it's the proof in the pudding. What are they going to see behind the veil? And that's the stuff that I really am passionate about. And I know that you're passionate about as well. Absolutely. And I love what you said about output being the gauge and results because we've seen this. It hasn't worked. Here's the good news. We tried it. We spent decades implementing a host of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in all kinds of domains from academia to corporate America and so forth. And what we have seen is oftentimes they do not move the needle. And there's three things you really talked about as outcomes that we need to really hone in on. The first is representation is an excellent key performance indicator. Are you seeing a shift in representation? Are there literally more women, persons of color, LGBTQ at those highest levels, because that's where you really have to judge it. Secondly, beyond just representation, are there equal opportunities? Is there a fair playing field? Are there processes and policies in place to help ensure that we acknowledge our biases and the barriers and that we create opportunity? When I go back to talking about how women have so little interaction with top senior leaders. That is a systemic policy opportunity. Stop telling women to go find mentors. Stop putting that on their shoulders of the women themselves who already have so much on their shoulders, they can barely carry what's already on their shoulders. And now you're asking them to do another thing when it's perfectly within the capabilities while you're implementing all these DEI initiatives to do that. And then that fair pay piece, just fix the pay. I get so frustrated sometimes when we have these percentage increases, because what happens is everyone comes in at different levels and certain people, women and persons of color come in at a disadvantage. And then we decide later, we're going to be fair, quote unquote, and we're going to give everyone a 5% raise, but then everyone's getting a 5% raise on top of the inequitable starting point. Exactly. There's never a way to catch up. You can't catch up if you implement equity or fairness later in the game (laughs) when you're already so behind. And I think that's so important. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So each week I end with a manifest statement and I'm going to pull a quote directly from an article I read recently on equitable workplaces. And this really speaks to what you just said, Dr. Pierce. Quote, equitable workplaces cannot exist without diverse leaders, equal opportunities, and fair pay. And the process of creating them can't start without acknowledging the need for change, end quote. And this is exactly what you've been saying. We need acknowledgement. We need amplification. We need allyship. And we need to be looking at those key performance indicators. And you've so beautifully outlined how, as a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, we can look through that lens and start to create that uncomfortable but necessary change. Absolutely. Thank you so much for 
letting me share this space. Um, well, I'm so glad I could talk about this all day, right? We could just talk about this all day. So (laughs) yes, we can. (laughs) It has been so awesome. Just such an important and necessary conversation. And I thank you, Dr. Pierce for being here, but also for the work you continue to do to really work to create the change that we so need. Thank you so much, Dr. DeSimone. Thank you for the work that you do as well. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Woman podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.